a lot of entrepreneurs actually lose a lot of focus and, and their mission becomes fundraising instead of building a great product for their customers. You are the factor. Today is a really special day. This is our first episode in the launch of this project. Welcome to The Factor. Uh, I'm your host, Sonny Mayuba. I'm a multi-time founder who's experienced the gut-wrenching failure and the glory of taking a startup from failure to napkin to NASDAQ. Now I work with Sparrow Ventures, the premier early stage venture capital firm with a focus on investing and growing the next generation of great founders and companies. And I'm really excited about today's guest because he's someone, as you guys have been hearing, that I've admired for over a decade. So meet Zach Anisco. Zach knows the grind. He's been a freelancer, an employee, a founder, an executive, an investor, an advisor, a CEO, and he maintains a family. So I have a ton of questions for Zach. So let's dive in. Zach, welcome. You are the factor. Thanks, man. You're the CEO of the largest, most active community for creatives, Dribble. So I imagine there's some people here who don't know what Dribble is. Let's start there. Why don't you just tell us what it is, what it's about, and how it works. Yeah, so Dribble is, in, in its essence, you can think of it as a professional network, but a portfolio network, right? We're a place for designers, web designers, graphic designers, logo designers, illustrators, typographers. They upload their work to the community and they uh, meet other peers and, and also meet hiring managers and people looking to hire them and, and put them into whether freelance projects or full-time roles. We have individual profiles, we have team profiles. So some of the teams, everyone from Uber to you know, Airbnb, Facebook, Google, their design teams are on Dribble and sharing their work. And yeah, it's a really cool, cool place. You know, I think that uh, for somebody not familiar, there's, there's some analogies to you know, like a LinkedIn where we have a job board, we have some recruitment products, we have a subscription product for designers with an advertising business. And I think where LinkedIn has been very successful making the resume synonymous with the LinkedIn profile, our ambition is to make the Dribble profile synonymous with the portfolio. And why do creatives love it so much? You know, what is it about it that makes them flock to it. I mean, it's like you said, it's some of the biggest companies in the world uh, have designers and source designers from there on a permanent or freelance basis. And you have entry level, you know, it's a safe place for people to get started. So what is it about Dribble that makes talents love it? One of the things that the founders did, you know, going back 11 years ago, Dan Cederholm was a, a star designer and was speaking at a lot of conferences. And that was really the origin story for Dribble was he was peering over the shoulders of designers, you know, backstage, like, hey, what are you working on? What are you working on? And really just like super fascinated with what, what people were, were designing and building. And so that was the origin of Dribble was to, it was, it was show and tell for designers, right? Just showing what you were working on. Right. You know, over the years it's evolved and it wasn't, per, you know, a, a mission for us, but it just kind of evolved into what it is now is more of this portfolio network where people were originally showing kind of a moment, a snapshot in time with a piece of work. And now it's, you know, a lot of designers are showing kind of finished, polished examples of what they're doing. And it's become this inspiration destination, right? Millions and millions of people are on the site every month and, and they come to kind of look at the latest designs and trends and, and just the cool stuff that people are making. Okay, I wanna jump into something that really kind of blew me away about the company. Dribble's been bootstrapped, which means no venture capital, 
no outside investors, and the company's profitable. And I, I only emphasize this because this is a rarity, especially in tech, right? Where you raise massive rounds, you function at a loss, and you just keep growing, and you keep you know, getting money from VCs. You just don't see, see that very often. And I, I want to understand what that does to the culture of the company. Does that change the way you guys function pressure-wise, uh, performance-wise? Does it make you slower, faster? Was this an, a conscious choice? I mean, tell me about how this affects the company. You know, when I, when I took over with Dribble, I was still kind of drunk on the Silicon Valley of, you know, multiple startups that I've, I've had previously and, and raising, you know, tens of hundreds of millions of dollars over the years across all the, the different companies. And that, I think that's just the wisdom as an entrepreneur, you, you kind of are taught that that's how, that's what you have to do, right? And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs actually lose a lot of focus uh, and, and their mission becomes fundraising instead of building a great product for their customers. Boom. And so, uh, I mean, I was fortunate enough to take over this company and it was already profitable and, 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 and it was, you know, under optimized and, and we've done a great job growing the business over the last, you know, three, four years. The big learning for me is that once I kind of shed that kind of inherent need and, you know, I immediately had all this like crazy inbound from <laughs> every VC under the sun and getting money, I don't think would be a problem at this point, but it does take some discipline to, to, you know, kind of just delete those emails from, from the analysts who are just trying to uh, dig into your numbers. And yeah, I mean, I think that the times are changing, to be honest, and then maybe this is controversial since this is, you know, this is sponsored by a, a VC firm, but, um, and, I, and I make investments too, and, and that's, and it's great, but I think for, for entrepreneurs who are watching, you know, I think that, you know, the, the times have changed dramatically over the years, you know, when we were getting our start 20 years ago or whatever, you had to raise money because you had to hire, you know, engineers out of Stanford because your, your application was Java and, and, you know, you had to uh, buy expensive uh, servers that you, you co-located. Yeah, actual servers. <laughs> there is a real investment, right? And I think today, you know, you spin up AWS with a fraction of a penny. Uh, you, you have frameworks like Ruby on Rails that, that basically is an application and, and the starter set for an application. You don't have to build all that stuff from scratch. And so you can literally go from an idea to building an MVP in a weekend. And then there you are, you know, six months later and you're competing globally with some of the big dogs in the universe. And, and it's, uh, so it's a fascinating time. And I think that we'll start to see a trend where more entrepreneurs don't have to sell you know, 7% of their company to join the next incubator or, or sell 20% more to get their, their, their first chunk of change to, to finance. Um, and then I think this, this whole, you know, we could talk about the remote thing later, but that's a big part of the economics as well is that, you know, when you don't have to sign a five, seven year uh, commercial lease in San Francisco and you don't have to spend three X the national average for engineering salaries in San Francisco, it changes economics for your P&L and it just changes your entire perspective of, of running a, a healthy, sustainable, you know, successful business. Be honest with me for a second. Canva raised 60 million at a 6 billion. I mean, that's insane. And I know your phone must ring it off the hook. Profitable, the age of the company, the maturity, the, the, the active users, the, the portfolio and content. You don't want to even look under the hood and like, I mean, how do you resist? How do you resist if, uh, 
if firms come knocking well, on I mean, the door? I think it's a it's an expensive check to cash, right? And so right now we're in control of our own destiny. Um, you know, the tiny capital guys, Andrew Wilkinson, uh, they're on our board. And our board relationship is super casual. I send like a monthly financial update over email. I'll send some text messages back and forth. Um, and maybe once a year we meet up in person, but that's kind of the formality of, of my board structure where, right. you know, at past companies, like I was like blood, sweat and tears just to put together the, you know, just to prepare for the board meeting. And it was like putting on the boxing gloves and because there's a lot of uh, misalignment between entrepreneurs and investors, because as soon as you take that check, you're, you're on somebody else's time clock. You know, there's, there's a five to seven year typical average term to, to return on that fund. Right. And, and, you know, the, the VCs who, who write, who write the checks, you know, they have uh, LPs that they have to return a profit to. And so it's all part of this, um, this system. And, and so that, that massive, you know, $6 billion valuation, I mean, that also changes the, the exit potential for, for a founder as well. And kind of changes the optionality. Right. And, and so for dribble, our optionality is wide open. So we have all the paths sure. under the sun open to us right now. And, you know, so we've been very mindful of, of those, you know, yes, it's, it's alluring. Right. And I think that <laughs> we've been in the offices of, of the top 10 uh, firms in the world and have gotten really, you know, tempted and gotten very close to, uh, sure. to a term sheet. And, um, and ultimately, I mean, look, I mean, I feel kind of guilty saying it, but we're, we're, you know, we're in a really good spot and we're able to finance, uh, finance our business. We just made a very sizable uh, acquisition. We just acquired my, my former company, Creative Market. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and we got a, a very um, prosperous future in front of us. And so there's just not a huge need you know, to right. take somebody else's money to finance yeah. the, the business. Give advice to the founders that do need some runway to figure it out. You know, I know from my experience, I needed some runway and things worked out lovely. We raised capital from, you know, individuals and VCs, you know, returned a great X to them. And I got a nice journey out of it. You, sometimes you just need runway to figure it out. Sometimes you need runway to, to, to build things, right? You're definitely an anomaly in, in this space. So what, I mean, what it, I'm not, I'm, yeah. not anti, I'm not anti, you know, venture capital. I think it's sure. great for, for, you know, a lot of businesses and, and there's different business models and there's different, you know, totally. um, and, and we're starting to see a lot of like, you know, non software businesses that need to buy expensive hardware and it actually does take a lot of investment. But I think particularly for software businesses, the landscape is changing, right? You have like the web flows of the world where you can, as a, as a non, you know, programmer, I can get an MVP put together in a weekend myself, right? I don't totally. have to hire somebody from Upwork or, or, you know, anywhere else. I can get pretty far these days on my own uh, right. with the tools that's, that, that are provided. So. No, that's, um, that's, that's the advice. I mean, get as far as you can. That's, that's yeah. the right, that's the right message. Get as far as you can and, and you'll know if you need capital or not. You know, I think, you know, you go back to the old like PG, the Paul Graham advice too, of like, you know, the early days, it's very, it's, it's laborious manual growth, right? So you're not like trying to do like viral loops and, and stuff. You're, you're going out and knocking on doors and just asking people for feedback and like, let's just get that first customer. And once you get that first customer and get your next 10 customers, you know, that's the early day hustle that I think a lot of people don't, uh, I think we've lost a lot of that in like that 
people are spending more time, you know, optimizing their pitch, you know, to the, the incubators of the world than they are optimizing their pitch and their, their product market fit to get into their first, you know, hundred customers. There's a really great book and I, I am totally spacing on the author. It's called, I think it's called Scaling Lean. But the first like opening of the book uh, kind of breaks down like these like basic like calculations of like a SaaS business, right? Hmm. And you start to look at like the simple thing of like pricing, number of customers. He has this example of like $10 million goal. Hmm. You want to build a business with $10 million and you start back pedaling the the math it takes to get to that goal how many customers what's your lifetime value what's what's your uh, you know customer acquisition cost and you start to put those pieces in and i think if more entrepreneurs just did that exercise of what do i actually need to put together to get to my goal versus oh you know what would be cool product is like let's you know let's here's this crazy idea there's this market for it and we you know you know, I do do investing and, and I get a lot of, you know, as we all do, just, just, you know, very uh, ambitious ideas that are, that are very much like just an idea in a, in the deck. Right. And, uh, and, you, and you start to see these like crazy tams, like what if everyone in the world bought my thing? <laughs> yeah. Or the, cla- or the classic, if I only had 1% of this market, I'd be worth yeah. it. But, if, it, yeah. but look, look, if you're two guys in a dorm room and you're looking to pay rent, make that rent your first goal. What's it going to take to, you know, quit Ooh, like that. job at the deli and just make, you know, have enough money coming into my business that pays my rent. It's not a That's crazy a goal. great first goal. Yeah. And then from that, how do I go from like, okay, how do I get my first employee and finance my first employee? And it's just baby steps, you know, and I think a lot of people lose that, you know, and it's what somebody, you know, creating a mom and pop business down on main street would do. Yeah, it's the fundamentals for, for a software business, you know? It's, no, it's, that's, that's awesome. So you, you touched on something I want to talk to you about. So, you know, you were creative markets, chief growth officer, you ran it up to 6 million MAUs. I mean, that's just incredible. You're talking about something that's so important. And I tell founders this all the time, get a thousand fans. You know, one of my favorite stories is the, the thousand first true fans, uh, something Brian, a good friend Brian Alvey turned me on to. And, and as it turns out, getting a thousand customers is really hard. Like a thousand's hard and it's nothing, right? So, I mean, VCs won't even look at you. It's a, but, but a thousand fans. Right? So, well, that's right. Product, yeah. Product yeah. costs $10,000, then a thousand customers is, you're there. Yeah. But as you know, even a free product, getting a thousand people to use it, of sure, they'll log in, but to use it, to truly yeah. use it, it's, it's got to be good. So tell me about each phase of growth from that, your first thousand people to 6 million MAUs. We do a lot of just what I, what I talk about is like planting seeds, mm. right? You have to kind of diversify your approach and like plant seeds across all the various channels and ideas. And, you know, we did some scalable stuff, but it's a non-scalable stuff. And you kind of just try to see what's going to actually sprout and, and grow rings. And once you see that sprout, then you can go and nurture that channel and kind of let some of the you know, the seeds that didn't sprout go. But yeah, I mean, it's different for, for every company. Every company has, you know, different channels. I think the oversimplified, Andrew Chin has a blog post that talks about there's uh, basically five channels for scalable growth. So like kind of focusing on on those five helps just kind of understand the, the landscape. But I think 
in, in those five are, what is it? Uh, virality, viral loops, paid ads, SEO, sales. Um, but anyway, so, but, but you have to like, kind of like grow into each of those channels before you even know, like if any of those channels are going to work, you kind of have to test the waters um, and not, you know, each one is like actually really hard to, to pull off successfully. But, you know, we did some stuff early on that was very manual, right? And, and inviting designers personally, personally with Dribble, Dan, our, our co-founder, he had 50 boxes full of t-shirts and sent a handwritten note and said like, basically, please, you know, you're a famous designer, come check out my new thing. And like Love that, that. t-shirt was enough to get like that original like 50 people on and then 100 people came and then before you know it, a thousand people came and then before you know it, it was you know seven million mau a month you know that's it do the things that don't scale another pg and something that's near and dear to my heart go old school sometimes you know pass out flyers send out cards send out t-shirts that's i used that's to do cool. at, at creative market we um for shops you know it's the marketplace yep. when a shop would uh would actually got in trouble for this we found out later is illegal um but we made okay. these like really nice like letterpress had their logo embossed on the on the cover of it it's like this really nice like linen paper and then it had your first dollar bill uh inside the the envelope and i'd write a handwritten note and so i had my team actually do an assembly line one person put the dollar in one person would you know i'd write the notes someone other would lick, lick the envelope another person put the stamp <laughs> on it and uh and we'd like every month and like every month it just like the number of people making their first dollar in the marketplace grew until we couldn't like do it manually anymore we just gave up nice you know but that early just the you know you start to see those tweets out there and people like holy shit create a market sent a dollar to this person it was like it was like a plaque so you can put it on your desk proudly that's so cool well Um, so sending the u.s currency through the mail is that the illegal part yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a big no, no, no. With the hey. <laughs> That's a good hack and it worked. Yeah. So how about now at Dribble? What, what metrics are you tracking to keep, keep your hands around the business? Revenue. Revenue. Yeah. Profit, you know, I mean, there's lots of, you know, it all splinters down, right. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, things that we're looking at and it's, it's actually a pretty complex business. It's not like a simple SaaS, you know, product. Of course. So, it's a you know it's a network it's a, it's a social and professional network um so i mean there's a lot of stuff that we're looking at but one of the things of uh and one of the benefits of being bootstrapped and, and not having um investors on the board is that we're free to grow at our own pace and uh and i think that you know we're i've gotten in trouble in the past like being in charge of growth of businesses is that the mandate was really coming from the board um, hmm. to grow as fast as possible for the goal of raising that next series as fast as possible. And, and it's kind of this like, and again, this kind of imbalance of like, what's the right thing for the customer and for the business. And like, there, there's like a healthy pace. And then there's a pace where you're, you're going so fast, your heart's beating, you know, that you're, you're at risk of a, a heart attack. Right. Um, and so I've been in businesses that we've, we've had heart attacks from, from growing too fast. Let's talk a little bit about remote. So, one thing that I don't, I didn't know was that you guys have been remote since day one, essentially, way before this, you know, pandemic, which is yeah. now has everyone remote and even companies that were scared to go remote because of productivity, employee bonding, getting things done. 
you know, I'm, I'm talking to friends of mine that are CEOs that are like, oh my God, this is working. And some people are actually more productive. That piece right there is, is um, so last companies going back years, we always had a fragment of the company that was remote just because they didn't live in San Francisco. You know, but there was always like a headquarters in San Francisco and in that hybrid approach. And I think at the, the company I was at just before uh, Dribble, we were around 250 employees and there were only about a hundred in San Francisco, but in their offices kind of all around the world in like, you know, 14 different cities. And, but what we saw was that uh, decisions were being made in San Francisco and they weren't being communicated to, you know, the majority of the company who was, mm. who was distributed. And so, you know, that was, that was always the, I, I kept coming back to that in my mind of like the hybrid approach is probably the wrong way to do it. Um, really? When I took over Dribble, it was only eight people on the team. Um, we're, we're just under 30 now. But I, I, you know, thought about getting a spot in Oakland. Like, look, this is just what I'm supposed to do. Like, you know, we're a startup. You're supposed to be, you're supposed to be in the Bay Area. Right. Um, and then I started to hire people that were not in the Bay Area. And it just didn't make sense. So, like, the further we went, we started hiring more and more people. We just said, you know what, I'm, you know, I was commuting to the city. My kids are, are were younger and, you know, they were going to bed uh, before I was coming home at night and, and I was leaving for, for the commute before they were waking up and I just wasn't seeing my family. So selfishly, you know, I, I kind of doubled down on the remote thing. Um, sure. I also built this home office in my, my garage. Nice. Model. So, uh, you know, I thought I was going to use this one day a week and have like one work from home. <laughs> you know, never looked back after kind of making a decision. Give us the secrets, like, you know, or, or tips and tricks on how do you, here, here's what I, I struggle with. How, how do you keep people connected? How do you keep, I mean, the productivity thing, I don't think seems to be an issue, right? But the, the human bonding aspect, the, you know, connectivity, that, that magic of collaborating in the same room. I mean, we both play music, you know, you couldn't, totally write the awesome album from afar you could i guess radiohead might have done it but you know you, you get in the room and you start jamming right so that jam session vibe of a company like is that ever going to come back or you because that's the hybrid approach is is it fully remote can you keep keep that bonding and that magic going yeah so i think that that magic still happens you know and i mean it's always been the dream of the internet to work remote, you know, and there's, you go back to that movie, the net for Sandra Bullock movie from the nineties and she's like <laughs> hacking on the beach in Bali or whatever. That's right. And, uh, and, and that was always the dream. And, and, but the reality is like the, that infrastructure from old school to new school came over and we all got kind of addicted to working together. And you've seen the transitions from like the cubicles to breaking down the cubes. Now we're bringing cubes back. It's just because you go into these, these offices and like you have these massive floors. And I mean, my last company without naming names, we're, we're spending, you know, six figures a month for rent. And, you know, half the time the company, you know, my, my team, which is like 40 people or whatever, would like, I just want to work from home because I can't get any work done in the office because it's too noisy and distracting having a hundred people like everyone's wearing like the boys noise canceling headphones and, and can't yeah. focus. So anyway, so yeah, so when I took over the company, immediately I saw that the engineer, the engineers of my team were like three X more effective, you know, working remotely than the team in San Francisco. 
Um, and it's just kind of that free of distractions. We've done something, yeah. you know, as we've grown to invest in, in, you know, two or three key areas. I think one is just over communication and, and just making sure that we, we kind of over document. Uh, a lot of companies have like a, a quarterly or a monthly all hands. We do all hands every week and yeah. go into every function and, and everyone kind of shows off and we rotate who kind of presents and shows what they're working on so that everyone has a voice, everyone has a turn of the microphone and uh, no one feels like they're out of the loop. Everyone's feeling plugged in, no one's stuck on Lonely Island feeling isolated. We do one-on-ones weekly, every direct report uh, talks to their manager. So they're just, you know, everyone's plugged in. The other one is just having fun, right? And so we're, <laughs> yeah. we're, kind of, we're goofy, we make jokes, or we have all these Slack channels like everyone else does, but um, I think I've tried to like set an example as a CEO of just letting my guard down and not have, trying not to have an ego and just being, you know, having a flat organization and just, just building trust with my team and, uh, and, and trying to just have this fun environment. So we do things like virtual coffee hours and book clubs and movie clubs, and we do like uh, games together and just trying to set time aside as, as a team that's not work. It's just like trying to bond as people and have fun and be goofy. And, and what we see is like that sense of humor really lowers the guard of people and lets people really be their authentic self. And I think you don't have that in an office environment. And that's why we have politics. That's why we have, you know, harsh working environments because everyone's just trying to jockey and get up to the next ring on the ladder, you know? So we've really been very mindful of building this culture of fun, a culture of, of communication and also a culture of trust. So the, the one thing I hear from a lot of managers and entrepreneurs that are, um, you know, a year ago, this is very contrarian to, to talk about having a remote company. Today, it's like, you know, it's the new normal. And, and so people are kind of thrown to the fire with this, but you have to trust your people to do their work. And so we don't have like set hours. Like people, I, one of the big benefits of being able to work remotely is that you can, you know, design a better day for yourself. And really, you know, have have your perfect day. If you need to, you know, go coach your kid's soccer team at three o'clock, like I don't care. As long as you get your work done, we're good. You know, and, and also being a remote company, it's very easy to spot who's not pulling their weight. Then we have that conversation and it cracks. Oh, really? Um, so it's easier. It's so accountability actually shows itself without well, having well, the mechanisms that's for the, that's the that's the over communication thing, right? And yeah. so daily standups and, and things like that. You really see, you know, we, we have the, our, our product team and our engineering team, they're setting the forecast for projects. So we kind of are, they're, they're kind of responsible for their, their deadlines and right. we're not hardcore about, you know, time frame and deadlines and stuff, but you know, if somebody says they're going to do something and it doesn't happen, then it's really, you know, it, it's glaring there. I'm like, okay, well, what happened? Let's talk about that. You know? Yeah, I mean, we've been very mindful from the beginning just about that culture and, and just knowing that being remote was going to be challenging to, to connect. The other thing that we've done is that, and, and we missed our, our last team trip was supposed to be in May, but we, we try to do two in-person meetups. And so we have this traveling roadshow circus design conference called Hang Time, and it's been now in in Boston, Seattle, LA, New York, and uh, is recent one was supposed to be in San Francisco, and didn't happen. But um, but that conference actually covers the T and E to fly all of our remote people together, and we hang out for a week. And it's laptops down. We don't do work. We don't like you know go in a co-working space and bang keys. 
we go and we go on duck boat tours, we go to museums, we go to comedy shows, we go to bars, we go to restaurants, we just hang out as people and get to know, you know, one another. And, um, and, and that, that's been super key to, even though we're, you can pull it off, you know, fully remotely, getting that in-person time, at least, you know, once or twice a year, uh, really connects people and, and again builds that trust. We did an offsite up in, uh, in in Marin last winter and we just flew out the product team and we got this like super awesome mid-century house and we just lived there for a week together. You know, we oh, really? actually got two Airbnbs because there wasn't enough beds for everybody. <laughs> um, but that was kind of the headquarters for the week and we just, you know, jammed out and, you know, did brainstorming all day, whiteboard sessions. So you do need that time and you can, you can make it happen. I think you can make it happen virtually too. Um, our product team uh, a quarter or two ago just flipped on Zoom and did like an eight hour brainstorm session. And, wow. uh, and, and they weren't talking the entire time, but like, you know, pencil sketching and it's like dead silent. You know, how uncomfortable is that for just like three seconds? But you know, 10, 15 minutes goes by and just people are just like, brainstorming and somebody be like, Hey, what do you think about this idea? Like, and that's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to jam on that. And you, know, you can do these like jam sessions virtually. Um, you know, as long as you get comfortable with that silence, you know, on zoom, that I think it, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. You kind of have to forget the cameras on. Yeah, um, you're right. I mean, look at, I, I just discovered, I mean, by just like a month ago, Jamboard in the Google suite, yeah, like yeah. Jamboard is, and then, so now I'm pulling up Jamboard when I'm on a hangout or something, or even, you know, on a zoom, and you go, let's, let me show you what I'm talking about. And then it, it lends itself to collaboration. So, yeah. so yeah, using all these new tools, Hey, this is a good time to go to the live audience. They have a bunch of questions for you here and I have them pulled yeah. up. Dribble works because you have a very large group of designers using the platform. Yeah. How do you get to that point and how do you run a network platform before you have the users? Yeah. I mean, you don't, right? Like you have to have, you have to have something, right? And we didn't have the dribble we have today, 11 years ago. It was a very bare bones version of it. And it's evolved considerably since then. But yeah, I mean, I think it's baby steps. You have to get those first, again, those first hundred users, 10 users, ask them what they want, go build that, make it a little bit better, ask them again, make it a little bit better and keep like, you know, it's, that's the cool thing about building stuff for the web is that it's never done. It's never you know, and, and you learn from, from the people who are using your thing, what it wants to be. Dribble today is not what we inceptualized, right? It's not, and it's, and it's going to be something very different from what it is today, you know, even a year from now. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, you have to be patient. I think that you probably shouldn't start networking businesses um, or, or businesses that don't have a business model because then you're, you, you don't have a way to fund the business. Again, Dribble started as, as a hobby, as a side project. It was an itch that, that you know, a co-founder, Dan, was one to scratch. And we added the, the pro subscription originally was just like as a donation, like help us keep the servers on, you know, <laughs> donate 20 bucks a year and get some extra features. And so that, that was kind of the evolution of that project. Then they added the, you know, the job board, you know, that was another revenue stream. Then we added the, the advertising business. That was another stream. That's... And those all have highly evolved since the early days of, you know, when it was just bringing in a couple hundred bucks a month or whatever. What was the almost death moment that one decision or one lucky break brought you to today? That's like a life question right there. I don't know if there's one. Yeah, but no, I got an answer. I got oh, an answer. sweet. Awesome. Um, 
So uh, I, I'm originally a designer and, uh, and right out of high school, I, I moved to San, or down to San Diego um, and was doing uh, some freelance web design and uh, decided that that was gonna be the career path for me. Went back to San Francisco, got a design degree. Um, and then out of college, I kind of had this path of, uh, of I, I wanted to work in the agency side of things and just be a, a, a builder and just design what is back in the days of flash and I was doing a lot of flash stuff and um, was just really like it, uh, in love with the really cool creative stuff that was happening uh, from a lot of the big agencies and want to be a part of that. I, I, I had 11 interviews with Goodby Silverstein in, in San Francisco, which is a huge award-winning agency and you know was they were just kind of like it was taking way too long. And I'm like, oh, this other this other startup called Tickle. Um, you know, the first I was like, is this a porn site? Turns out they they sold IQ tests um, and personality tests, and and but they're growing really fast. They just won like the Webby Award that year for fastest growing website. I'm like, you know what? I'm taking this job. This looks cool. I'm gonna try it out. You know, a, a year and a half later, we were acquired by Monster.com for 100 million dollars. That, that was uh, that was a big whirlwind. Um, from there, the co-founder of Tickle and I uh, started a company called Branch Out after a late night poker game at the Tickle office. Branch Out, um, you know, we raised uh, $40, 50000000 million, um, eventually sold that company, I left, you know, left and went, you know, from there had connections and, and met the guys at Creative Market. But that, you know, Rick, who, who was the CFO at Tickle and who I later started a company with, he was the guy who got me that job at Tickle. And here I was, this like, you know, early 20s kid, didn't have much of a, of a portfolio, but, you know, he took a chance on me and, you know, one thing led to the next thing, led to the next thing, led to the next thing. And, you know, here we are. Next, we have Dijon. Is Dijon off mute? Um, how did you manage scaling community? Were, every, were you ever concerned about that? Because I was a, I mean, I, I'm still a member since 20, uh, 2011, so the company's obviously changed a lot. How did you manage that and handle that without losing some of the charm of, you know, when you were a smaller business? Yeah, so I mean, I think that one of the big things that attracts people to Dribble is this, the quality bar. And, you know, we've had this invite system over the years. So, you know, you couldn't upload your work without being invited by another designer. And that was a great way to kind of control growth early days and also keep quality really high because you were, you know, personally vetted by, by another great designer. But as we've, as we've grown, we've kind of changed our focus of, you know, do we want to people gate people, you know, from, from being a part of, of Dribble? We still want to kind of suppress some of the, the lower quality work and, and let really great design filter up to the, the top of the, uh, the homepage. And so that's, that's been a lot of the work we've done is how do we really move from this exclusive community to an inclusive community where if, if you're a designer with 400,000 followers or with four followers, if you're doing really great work, our algorithms, we're making a lot of investments now in, in, you know, in, in data science and, and machine learning to be able to you know, identify what, what is great work from, from signals from the community and, and being able to uh, raise awareness and discovery for, for designers all around the world. And so that's kind of been uh, a big focus uh, in lately is, is, is that quality control. 
And, uh, and so once, while we're kind of doing this quality control work over here, we're also looking at, you know, opening the, the gates wider and, and letting more people in the door on this side. John Stern, go ahead and ask Zach. Yeah, Zach, I was wondering if you had um, a particular moment or number metric uh, achievement or momentum that really like made you feel like you had product market fit. Because I know that can be different for a lot of different companies, whether it's a number of users or number of revenue or whatever it might be. We have a bunch of different features and products, and I think we have product market fit for some and, and, and not for others. And we're still working on, you know, finding our way and the job's never really done. But no, I mean, I think for Dribble, where I came in and, and added value as a CEO is, is I really was responsible for taking it from a lifestyle business and, and you know, evolving it into an actual company, right? And, and a, a growth company. I, I told the team early on, uh, Dave McClure had these like pirate metrics, right? These, uh, the acronym of R, and I, uh, and that, that stands for, um, uh, you know, acquisition, activation, uh, retention, referral, and revenue. And I flipped it around and I turned the acronym to ROAR and turned it to Tiger Metrics because we just need to focus on revenue as a profitable business. Focus on that first. Let's start to do those, some of those optimizations and then work backwards and worry about traffic and everything else in the end. We're, I mean, we're privileged enough to already have uh, considerable traffic. We were you know, a top 3,000 website in the world three years ago. Today, we're a top 1,000 website in the world, so we have increased our traffic. Wow. But, you know, really focusing on, you know, revenue as, as a core. And, and it's kind of, again, it's almost contrarian because, you know, as, as you're, you know, starting a company, it's like, let's just get traffic and let's just get more users, users, users. But really finding those those customers who who will support you. And, and you know, that comes back to delivering value back to those those people and, and that's like the key to product market fit. If you can find that thing that's valuable enough that somebody's going to, uh, you know, pay you some amount of money for, that's that's uh, it's called a business. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's oh, that's the definition. Okay, no, great. Like photo sites, it feels like there is a cycle for design startups. Behance before Dribble. How do you think about the future? and make sure Dribbble is the location for designers for a long time to come. So one of the things that I, I did when I, I took over Dribbble and part of this kind of like evolution from, from lifestyle to, to company was I defined a mission and a vision statement for the company and, and core values for, 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 for the team, right? And one of those core values for the team was to not be afraid of taking intelligent risks. When you're designing a platform for designers, there's a lot of inherent fear in that of, of getting it wrong and, and getting backlash from this community now that, you know, can sometimes just feel us as like wave on Twitter. Uh, if you get something wrong for, you know, for the most part, we get stuff right. And we get a lot of love from the community, which is, which is great. But uh, you know, for a lot of years, I think the founders, there was this inherent fear of, of uh, complacency and, and, and don't change what, what ain't broken, you know, and, uh, and, and so you kind of become stagnant there and, and, you know, what we've been doing over the last, you know, two, three years is really investing in, in evolving drill and just making it a better, uh, a better platform for our community. And that's really just coming back and talking to our community and, you know, asking them what's, what's missing, what do we need to build? What's, what's the key features you guys want? and then making those investments over time. And, you know, I, I said in the beginning, and uh, we're, we're really focused on the, the portfolio functionality as, 
it's evolved away from this concept of a shot, which was, you know, I don't know if you can see it behind, yeah, no, it's up, up, up top mm -hmm. like on this mm -hmm. thing, but, you know, the original shot was 300 by 400 pixels. And, uh, you know, obviously our, our screens have evolved from that time, uh, from, from 2009. And, uh, and so, you know, we're, 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 you'll see some pretty, some pretty big changes to the platform over the next, you know, six months to a year as we really make investments in, in that area and, uh, and involve what Dribble is. All right. Unmute Tim from plural.com. You've got a great question and ask your question. Tim, go ahead. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, Zach, nice to meet you. My name is Tim from plural.com. Uh, we're also working on a marketplace for hiring uh, professionals. And we're pretty horizontal and it seems like Dribbble, of course, you focus on designers, right? Super vertical. Uh, but so how do you, how do you think about um, the future of multidisciplinary multiplayer mode um, when it comes to collaboration online uh, between uh, designers who are Dribbble users and then non-users, for example, front-end engineers, back-end engineers, and whoever else you need to, to, you know, to turn these designs into reality? So, I mean, I think uh, there are kind of two main categories on two big buckets on Dribbble today. It's kind of the graphic designer and the web designer. In the graphic designer bucket, you have illustrators, brand designers. Um, uh, under the web design, you have uh, you know, product design and even animation and, and things like that. And, and what we've seen is just last you know, couple of years, it's just kind of organically other creatives are coming. They're, they're showcasing other types of work. Um, 3D is becoming, you know, a big trend right now. We're seeing a lot of illustrators learn that, that skill set and, and polish those chops to make, you know, I think AR is going to be fascinating to see what comes out of that. And, you know, as that becomes more immersive in our, our user experiences, uh, voice design, uh, you know, there's going to be some really cool stuff as, as, you know, technology evolves. But for us, it's not something that we've been like purposefully you know, let's go after this particular subset of creatives. It's something that we'll, we'll kind of slowly start to support over time as we see more and more needs for, for different types of support from different types of functions. I think it's great. I think for most designers, it's not like you're just one thing. I think that, you know, there was this, uh, this term back in the day called multimedia because, you know, what was really cool about technology is that there were all these different types of mediums that you can put together um from from audio to video to to code to uh to to 2d design and um we're starting to see a, a resurgence of that which is really cool uh one more question from the audience we have ritu gupta ritu you're on live with zach hi zach great session love all the conversation my question is um from an early stage to now how have your challenges changed and the reason i'm asking is uh, I hear it doesn't get any better. More money, more problems. Yeah. <laughs> Biggie. So, I, I mean, I think, I think in the early days, it's very clear what you have to do, right? It's a very, you, you can see the light in the end of the tunnel. And I think as you grow and you acquire other companies and you, you know, the landscape is, is constant every day. There's like new opportunities, you know, from M&A or like new lines of business we might want to invest in. And, you know, I think that's, that's the big challenge of like, there's so, so many avenues we can take. It's not as focused and clear as it is in the beginning where it's like, okay, we have this simple idea. Here are our customers. Here's our niche. Here's our, you know, thing. And so we're, we're in a, 
you know, as, as Scott Belsky from uh, Behance would say, we're in the messy middle right now, which is, uh, it's not as clear. Zach, let's talk about music. The day I met you, you had a stone shirt on and I yeah. sent you that photo back. And what got me excited is I'm a huge Stones fan. What are you looking for? You got a Stones poster up or something? So I have a bunch, I don't know if you can see this. Oh. I got uh, all these autograph records here. I got uh, Neil Young, there's a dad up there with Jerry Garcia. Nice. Cream, Joe Walsh, Joe Cocker. There's the Eagles. Nice. Uh, and I got Led Zepp in the hallway, so. Awesome. So you got the classics down. I'm down with that. So how about some new music? What are you, what are you jamming right now? Anything that's, that you've been into? So, I mean, I've, I, you know, I grew up on listening to a lot of punk rock and then evolved into a lot of electronica stuff, you know, when I was, you know, much younger, um, you know, the classic rock stuff I inherited from my dad and, and that's just kind of part of my DNA. And yeah, I mean, I, what, what did I see last? I saw Tycho. Uh, oh, nice. Tide. Um, Love Tycho. Yeah. In Berkeley uh, a few months back. Back when you could see live music. <laughs> yeah, the good old days. We have two small kids these days, so kind of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, you're just throwing on like outs, but um, stations. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, but, um, that goes a good one. Last thing I want to ask you, I saw that 100% of Dribble's shop proceeds will go to Equal Justice Initiative, a nonprofit challenging racial and economic justice. By the way, I applaud this. I think it's such a cool thing. You know, where did that come from? And I really would like to hear your point of view because there's been a lot of talk since George Floyd, um, especially in the tech community. Like, are we doing enough? And people are looking within and going, shit, we're not doing enough. What do you think that tech companies should be doing to help the world achieve racial and economic justice and equality? It's a very complex problem, right? So I think, you know, the last few weeks, you know, as, as designers and, and product people, we like to solve problems. So you're just constantly kind of thinking through, you know, these two big ones coming from um, the protests and, you know, the, we got a police brutality problem in, in this country and authority overstepping their, their place. I think that is just something that, you know, there's, there's a lot of bullet points in that one, but it, it's a solvable one, right? I think that that one, you can kind of find how to retrain people, how to, you know, put laws in effect to hold people accountable for their actions. The inherent racism one is, is a, it's a tougher one to solve, right? And so it's, uh, and it's also going to be one that's going to be very uh, deeply rooted in education. We have to evolve as a society and, um, I live in Walnut Creek and, you know, all of downtown has got smashed up and looted and then we're followed by a, a bunch of peaceful protests. I was in my car picking up my, my kids on the freeway, going on the freeway to pick up my kids at my mother-in-law's house uh, the other week and, uh, and, and a sheriff comes and like stops the traffic on the freeway. All of a sudden this deer comes running at me this way. I'm like, there's a deer on the freeway. That's trippy. And then all of a sudden, like the protest just came on the freeway and I was stuck there for an hour. And, you know, and, and it's a weird, I'm in a weird, like I'm, I'm a white male uh, CEO of a company. I, I was driving a freaking Mercedes and, you know, <laughs> I, I wanted to, you know, honk the horn and, and you know, bump fuck the police. But, uh, you know, also didn't want my window smashed because I didn't know who was the anarchist and who was the, the protester. And so it's just a very weird time. And I think that, you know, we do need, 
these social revolutions to be able to to change, right? And I think that this is this one's different. You know, we've seen a few of these over the years, and this one definitely feels uh, feels different. And I think that from companies, we we need to do more. Uh, I'll, I'll shed some light on Dribble, right? We're we're about seventy percent male. You know, we get that from Google Analytics. So there's there's definitely a equality problem just in the design industry. You know, and then being U.S. based, it's you know you take a look at our leaderboard and you see very much uh, predominantly white as well. And so I think, you know, for our community, there's, you know, we've, we've raised thousands of dollars for NAACP and, and um, you know, different charities, but that's just throwing money at the problem. I think for us thinking about our platform, uh, you know, as a whole and how, you know, again, kind of moving from this exclusive community to an inclusive community, because we had this invite system it was a lot of white males inviting other white males they knew and that kind of just that was just kind of how it happened and and so you know we're looking at features and functionality and things that we can do in our social channels and our, our blogs and our podcasts and how we can raise the awareness of, uh, of black designers of female designers of uh, designers from Sri Lanka from designers from uh, from you know the middle of nowhere, you know we're, we have designers all over the world, right? And uh, and so we're 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 trying to take action there to raise the awareness and and you know help uh, less privileged folks uh, become successful designers as well in their career. And then yeah, I mean I think you know for for our company as Journal too, just you know our our hiring practices. You know, we we have had we've gotten to a point in the past where we're 50%, you know, male female ratio. We we try to hire from hiring boards, from uh, different types of boards to you know to, to not just kind of uh, flood the 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 ATS full of uh, stereotypical applicants. So, but no, it's 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 complex. It's hard. It's not going to be an overnight fix. But I think that uh, as much as you know, I didn't like boarding up my wife's shop downtown. You know, I, I still supported the cause and uh, I think it's a, it's going to be a positive thing for society and moving in the future. I appreciate this talk with you. Uh, we're at time. Audience, thank you for joining. Hey, keep supporting Dribble. Buy something from their online shop before next Tuesday. Zach and the team are donating all the proceeds in June to the Equal Justice Initiative, plus the stuff on the shop is just amazing. You can follow me at Sunny Mayuba and at Sparrow Ventures. Be on the lookout uh, to sign up for episode two. Uh, if you're a founder, by the way, visit foundersummit.vc. That's foundersummit.vc and snag a free ticket to the third annual Founder Summit from Sparrow Ventures. This is gonna be three days of amazing speakers, content, networking. Zach, share it with your team if you guys need uh, codes. Just say you know Ha Nguyen and you'll save 500 bucks. Uh, it's all on the site there. Um, Zach, thanks for being our first ever factor. Dude, you're the factor. All right, until next time, everybody stay safe, never give up. And if you're a sick company that does want the greatest investor in the world, send us your deck. Bye-bye, all. See ya. Thank you, Zach.